This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. It's not just about the technology, like the hardware piece of the technology. There are pieces of technology, too, from a people and process perspective that are also really interesting. Advancing the healthcare industry with targeted technological innovations. Today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast, sponsored by BKD. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today, I'm talking with Anthony Comfort from Visiquate about opportunities for technology to help tackle the industry's greatest challenges. Later, I'll be speaking with Brad Brotherton from BKD about what makes his firm stand out. But first, let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hey everyone, we are recording this segment on the morning of Tuesday, April 19th, and late in the afternoon on Monday the 18th, CMS dropped the proposed rule for the inpatient prospective payment system in FY23. So we thought we'd give our first impressions of some of the key points. According to the proposal, hospitals will get a 3.2% payment increase for inpatient services. And that's for hospitals that meet quality reporting requirements and don't get penalized through the various pay for performance programs. The thing of it is that CMS projects a $1.6 billion increase in payments with the update. But it's also saying Medicare disproportionate share hospital payments and uncompensated care payments will decrease by $800 million, as will add-on payments for new medical technologies. And Sean, there are some other decreases in there. And for a large number of hospitals, it seems like we're looking at a payment update that could be right around zero or a net decrease. What are the ramifications of that, especially in the current environment? Yeah, Nick. So the additional cuts will be six hundred million, a uh, six hundred million decrease due to the expiration of the low volume hospital and Medicare dependent hospital programs. So yeah, you're right. The concern is that that in the midst of digging ourselves out from a pandemic and COVID nineteen still looming, hospitals are looking at a net decrease thanks to the CMS update. So a little shocking that CMS and Medicare would go this route, given that. You know, hospitals and the healthcare trade have been very instrumental and key the last two years in our support and and our dig out from this pandemic. But it is what it is right now, and we're expecting some pretty robust commenting on this significant payment decrease to hospitals over the next fiscal year. Yeah, without question, and hospitals and other stakeholders have sixty days during which to make their feelings heard. So like you said, the the comment period's going to bear watching. One other noteworthy aspect regarding uncompensated care, which we mentioned in FY23, according to the proposed rule, CMS would use two years rather than only one year, as has been the case previously, of audited data on uncompensated care costs from worksheet S10 
of Medicare cost reports. Those two years would be FY18 and FY19. And for FY24, the proposal is for the number of years to go up to three. So this approach should lead to less variation in uncompensated care payments from one year to the next. Does that sound right, Sean? Yeah, I would agree. Using the the greater span on data from the S10 cost report, especially due to hospitals still wrapping their heads around that that new S10 report, that should help us with some unintended flexibility in that area and instability. Um, Speaking of instability, though, in common theme to all the other rules that have come out so far this year, the IPF, the IRF, and the hospice, um, CMS has permanently capped decreases to hospital wage index at 5% in the IPPS rule as well. So this may help a little bit in some of that wavering wage index work that we're seeing across different regions and within different areas of the country, but it still is budget neutral. And due to the fact of the way the pandemic rolled out and hit parts of the country much harder during that first six months than others, we still could see some pretty significant swings in wage index. And it'll be very interesting to see how hospitals deal with that, because some hospitals could be hit pretty hard due to the fact that CMS does not seem to be wavering on not making these adjustments non-budget neutral over the next year. So lots to watch here in wage index and a lot on the table to lose. For sure. And the, the budget neutral aspect is significant. I mean, that means, of course, that the funds to serve as a stopgap to larger wage index creases would have to come out of Medicare payments in some other way. So that definitely bears watching in coming years. And I know you wanted to touch on some key proposals related to value-based purchasing that we're seeing in the rule. Yeah, Nick, I mean, I I personally was not very surprised at the hospital value-based purchasing programs changes, but they are worth mentioning. Of course, all measures in its hospital acquired condition reduction program, they are beginning to suppress those again for the next fiscal year due to the pandemic. And, And as a result, hospitals would not experience fiscal year 2023 payment adjustments under either program, but CMS is proposing 10 new measures for the inpatient quality reporting program, including three related to equity related measures and two perinatal electronic clinical quality measures. And then of course, to increase the IQR programs um, reporting requirements from four to six beginning in the calendar year 2024. So I think these are all areas that we expected to see changes in and, and new developments um, in on quality and especially health equity is, is extremely hot topic right now. And I know hospitals have been preparing for these changes as best they can in this last year. So we'll be diving deep into those details over the next week. I'm sure you will be as well, Nick, but folks really need to, to look at those and, and comment appropriately. Yeah, Absolutely. And thanks, John, for those insights. Definitely Uh, something to keep in mind. As you noted, all these proposals are just that for now. They're proposals and there's a public comment period that runs through June 17th. So all stakeholders have a chance to make their voice heard on the viability of this rule and and some of the specific regulations that are included. And of course, we'll be keeping you up to date at hfma.org slash news. A few weeks ago on this podcast, I had a conversation with Michael Duke from GuideHouse about the dangers of adopting technology without knowing whether it will actually help solve the problem you're trying to solve. 
Today's guest is helping me answer the next logical question. Where are the biggest opportunities? Where are the places where real improvements can be made with the help of technological innovations? And he has a lot of ideas. Here to talk with me is Anthony Comfort, Executive Vice President of Product Management and Innovation at VisiQuate. The pandemic pushed the industry forward in many ways, but when it comes to technology and patient care, there are definitely some opportunities we're taking advantage of that we weren't before. And once you move past the consumerism and convenience and into patient care and outcomes, the population that seems to come up most often, at least in conversations I've had around this, is people with chronic conditions. Heart disease and diabetes are among the leading causes of death and disability in the U.S., they're also leading drivers of high health care costs. So obviously, this is an important population to pay attention to. So tell me how technology can help improve the overall health of this patient population. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's such a such a timely problem, especially since so many patients uh, during COVID did not go seek out care for fear of you know, entering a medical setting. And so I think technology can really help in a couple critical ways and, and is helping in a few key ways right now. In more recent times, we've, we've definitely seen a variety of new types of Bluetooth-enabled blood glucose meters and continuous glucose monitors for the diabetic patient population that's been coming into play. You know, Dexcom's most recent CGM making it fairly easy and painless to install CGMs so that way patients can, you know, in real time see exactly what their, you know, blood glucose or sugar levels uh, are doing. And what's what's more important is because of that Bluetooth enablement, being able to communicate with an app on the phone and then being able to drive that data back to care providers, whether that is a physician uh, whether that be a care manager on either the provider or the payer side, you know, depending on the patient's care program, uh, being able to see those insights quickly and then pair that with things like coaching or other types of AI-assisted digital assistance, pointing out to the patient where they need to make modifications to their behavior has been huge and will continue to explode as it ripples throughout the diabetic patient population as we move forward. And so I think that that's one key way in which technology, especially with a lot of patients not going back to the endo, uh, in the case of diabetic patient population, is going to be a critical way for providers to get insights into how their patients are doing, even when they're not coming in. And more importantly, be able to make micro adjustments uh, in behavior. But as I mentioned, it's not just about the technology, like the hardware piece of the technology. There are pieces of technology, too, from a people and process perspective that are also really interesting in how they're catering to these types of patient populations. So we've definitely seen over the past few years the rise of digital coaching and larger adoption for programs like Noom, right, for programs like Intervent and other you know, service providers that, that exist out there that try to partner technology with humans to add a human touch to the coaching process uh, to make sure that patients actually have somebody that they can work with on a day-to-day -day basis to uh, seek remedies to everyday you know, behavior that can have an impact on their health. Uh, and then finally, from a process perspective, it's all about coordination. And so I think one of the trends that we've definitely seen over the past couple of years, or might not quite call it a trend, but a potential of a trend emerging is 
the emphasis placed on care continuity and the idea of handoff points between providers, between payers, and especially the rise in popularity of IDNs as payers and providers begin to collaborate more and more using technology to provide that type of care to the patient. And so I think there's been a number of technology enablements on a number of different fronts, some that goes directly in the patient's pocket or on their arm, as it were, right? Some that is used by providers to enable care, some that's even used by payers to better communicate and coordinate with providers that when you surround the patient with that ecosystem of technology, makes it more manageable to manage chronic conditions uh, like diabetes. You talked about technology helping sort of coordinate among not only patients and providers, but payers, others working together to you know, accomplish the, the goals that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you hear a lot about healthcare being a team sport, mm-hmm. but it's also an industry that is notoriously siloed. So how can technology help bring all of these parties together? If I kind of had to think about it, the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of transparency. There needs to continue to be a focus on, to kind of make a conflict analogy here, but how do we lift the fog of war between payers, providers, with ultimately the patient being in the middle, wandering around in the mist, you know, while payers and providers kind of try to figure each other out and maneuver, you know, in a way that allows them to continue to provide care and and also stay in business at the same time. And so I I think that this is definitely top of mind for many payers and providers right now. Nobody likes the way that that plays out, uh, you know, say for maybe a few (laughs) that exist out there. Statistically, got to chalk it up to that, of course. Uh, But examples that I see where people are starting to come together and, and foster a greater sense of teamwork are uh, you know some health systems actually opening up? I know this is going to sound pretty radical, but they are doing this, uh, opening up their billing platform in some way, shape, or form to payers in order to get to a point of some type of real-time adjudication, right? Where payers can actually see what's happening on the provider side. Providers have more insights to what's happening on the payer side, and you have you know a reduction in AR days just simply by the fact that people actually know what each other's doing and how they're thinking in longer cycle times than well, I'm going to send along my appeal letter later and I'll hear back from you either 14 days from now, 30 days from now, or maybe 45 days from now, or maybe never, right? If something gets lost, uh, you know, through the cracks. So I think transparency is one really critical area of focus and Platforms that exist out there that could do this are great, or just simple low-tech tricks like, hey, why don't we just see what's in each other's systems and try to get to a state where we're actually adjudicating things together rather than tossing stuff to each other over the proverbial wall. As I was listening to you, I was I was thinking, I wonder what some of the providers who are listening are thinking of some of your points, because I imagine for a few things, there are a few who are kind of shaking in the roots particularly when it comes to sharing information with their payers. Oh, yeah. Although I I have spoken to a couple of health systems who have dipped their toe in the water of this and they say good things about it. They say that their relationships with their payers have indeed improved. It's Mm -hmm. it's a matter of how you set your system up and and kind of the practices that you put into place. It's not Mm -hmm. just, hey, guys, come on in and look at whatever you want. That's not a great idea. But... When you give when you give the the right access to the right parties, 
then that can be a really effective way of, of improving your processes and, and of course, improving your relationships. And, and I'd really love to hear your thoughts. It seems like like workforce shortages, burnout enters every conversation that I'm having lately. Yep. What we seem to be learning is that we're not going to be able to solve the workforce shortage issues by just doing more of what we've done in the past. That's not going to make up for the difference. So technology also really big opportunity here, I think, and changing the way that we deliver care so that we can do it more efficiently with the people that we are able to have. So tell me about your thoughts on this one. From a productivity standpoint, it's how do I get my people spending less time documenting every single thing that they're doing? and making it just more part of what they do in their daily interaction points. So stories that you hear about here are for clinicians. You hear about, you know, smart uh, assistants sitting in the room with them, listening to what they're doing, and then converting that in real time into notes. And then other systems at the same time, converting those notes into actual clinical codes, DX codes, PX codes, right? CPT codes, HixPix codes the whole nine yards, right? Fully end-to-end automated coding from the words coming out of the clinician's mouth all the way to, you know, a a properly coded claim. Uh, Now, it's not true for every single aspect of the clinical life cycle, but these technologies are actually starting to manifest themselves, taking, you know, a a bullseye, you know, right onto the problem of, of burnout because physicians are now spending less time doing documentation, therefore becoming more productive in the super measure of how many, you know, patients are they having quality touches uh, with? And then on the back office side of the equation, you know, same, same kind of concept, right? How do we get collectors? How do we get uh, other revenue cycle team members, patient access folks, you know, not sitting in, in, you know, going to 15 different payer portals to try to go get off submitted (laughs) and then, you know, documenting in shorthand notation, all the little notes that they add, you know, to the account record, and then simultaneously going and pasting that into some other system, you know, explaining you know, what they did to an account. And so I think some of the, the things that you're starting to see there is an interoperability language uh, beginning to manifest itself with either certain vendors creating different strategic alliances, uh, larger vendors creating different strategic alliances to offer combined you know, product packages that make that possible. EHRs in certain cases catching up and providing more of those features and functions uh, directly to you know, those types of staff members to avoid having to spend time on menial work and spending more time on solving problems, right? With complex claims or whatever the case may be. On the process front, there's been a very strong interest in the past few, like I would say two years, and and this makes me really happy as a technologist and a a self-avowed nerd uh, in process mining. Especially at an executive level, people really waking up to this technique, this domain of data science, where we try to organize our data in a way that tells a story of what exactly happened to a claim, to an account, to an encounter over time. Every single little touch that was made and making sense of every single one of those touches. And when I say touch in this case, it's not just entering a note into the account, it's the fact that you went to some portal. Uh, to go do a claim status request or that you received, you know, a claim automated claim status uh, response about what actually happened or what, what the you know status of that claim is with a particular payer. But putting together this longitudinal, you know, artifactory of what happened, 
uh, to an encounter over time in a way that then process mining tools and techniques can start to make sense of what is actually happening at the ground level of the processes that people are following. And then using cool machine learning type technologies to sift back through that highly structured and groomed data at that point to figure out what are all the different process paths that people are taking to get to a point where a claim has dispositioned as a zero balance, right? From a revenue cycle perspective. And those kinds of techniques and those kinds of tools are gonna be game changers for finding new opportunities for automation, for figuring out the shorter paths uh, to getting something done uh, and ultimately removing administrative waste from the revenue cycle. Anthony Comfort, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Absolutely, Erica, it was my pleasure. Let's take a moment now to get a word from our sponsor, BKD. You might have heard BKD partner Danielle Solomon on our podcast last fall discussing innovation and disruption as part of our Healthcare 2030 series, which BKD also helps support. Recently, though, I got the chance to speak with Brad Brotherton, a partner with BKD and the firm's healthcare regulatory practice leader, about what makes the firm unique and what's on the horizon. What makes BKD's healthcare regulatory reimbursement consulting practice unique? Well, you know, Erica, I, I probably think that there's quite a bit, but I'm going to comment on just a couple of things. BKD, we're, we're coming up on our 100-year anniversary, and really for most of those years, we've been providing CPA services to healthcare clients. We've gained a lot of experience over this long time period, and when you combine that with our broad geographic footprint, so we do serve clients in, in all 50 states. Combining those things allows us to have insights into trends that we're seeing across the country and react to them really timely. One other thing that, that I'll mention just briefly is that the large size of our practice allows our team members to subspecialize. So they're working in special focus areas, like they work only with academic medical centers and they may only work with long-term care or home care organizations. So we try to bring that right level of expertise to all of our clients' specific needs. BKD's merger with DHG has been pretty big news lately. How will that merger impact the regulatory reimbursement practice? Just to start off, uh, we're, we're very excited about our planned merger of equals with DHG. We're, we're expecting that and, and plan on that being effective on June the 1st. And that's going to make our new firm the eighth largest CPA firm in the country. So, yeah, it's super exciting from our end. But we're most excited about the combination of those strengths between our firm and how it's going to help us further serve our clients. It's going to add to our number of team members, you know, a lot of additional expertise that's going to be brought to, to the combined strengths. But we're also going to want to look at what are we doing well within each firm and, and where can we build on, on some of those opportunities. So one of the areas that we're really excited about is our data analytic tools. We think that with the new merger, we're going to have a lot more ability to accelerate uh, in the data analytics space and get timely information into our clients' hands. I know that's definitely an area that a lot of listeners, their ears probably perked up when you said data analytics. So, you know, certainly, certainly something that a lot of our members are looking at. What kind of changes do you foresee in the regulatory landscape and how can BKG prepare clients? Yeah, certainly. I think like probably all industries, there's, there's so much change 
and increasing complexity these days. But one of the things that, that we're really seeing is a challenge with succession planning and, and how the training is going to be rolled out for the next generation of leaders. We're actively working to develop training platforms. But one of the things that, that we're focusing on is really a co-sourcing approach to working with our clients to identify where are they having a difficult time finding the right expertise or replacing some of that expertise that may have been within their organization. And how can we help bring some of that uh, to their reimbursement department? One of the other things that kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of this is we have recently entered into a joint venture with HFS. And, and HFS is the software company that's responsible for helping providers file about 80% of the Medicare cost reports. And so we created a joint venture to form a cloud-based cost reporting work paper tool called HFS Plus, powered by BKD. And, and it's going to help efficiently and accurately pull information together out of accounting systems to put those cost reports together. And we think that at a time when there are increasing demands on people's time and a challenge with succession planning is going to be a real opportunity for hospitals to capitalize on some of those, those challenges. Brad Brotherton, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure, Erica. Appreciate it. BKD is a national CPA and advisory firm with 42 offices nationwide. BKD's National Healthcare Group serves 4,000 plus providers spanning the entire care continuum from standalone facilities to multi-billion dollar, multi-state integrated delivery networks. These providers depend on BKD for assurance, tax, financial and strategic planning, regulatory and reimbursement services, and so much more. On June 1st of 2022, BKD will merge with DHG, creating the eighth largest accounting firm in the country. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Got a hot tip for any of you with certifications out there. I checked my status today and I found out that my CRCR expires soon. So if that might be you too, get into that portal and start that recertification course. If you're not certified yet, what are you waiting for? Certifications are included in your HFMA membership and you'll be able to apply what you learn in your course in your job right away. And while you're sitting at your computer, send us an email. You can reach our team at podcast at hfma.org. 